Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. Um, I'm your host today, Inman, and uh, today we uh, have some folks coming on that I've really wanted to get on the podcast for a while, um, because I think that the work that they do is just really incredible, um, and um, and yeah, and I want and I want more people to know about it. Um, and so we have uh, two folks from No More Deaths or No Mas Martes coming on. Um, and No More Deaths is a humanitarian aid group that um, whose goal is to uh, you know prevent death and suffering in the borderlands. And they work primarily in southern Arizona and like you know in response to rampant border militarization. Um, and I'm really excited to, or that they have this new report coming out um, in their uh, series of reports called the Disappeared Series. Um, and uh, their new report, um, Separate and Deadly, uh, just came out. Um, and we'll have links in the show notes to where to find it, um, to read the whole thing. Um and I'm really excited to have folks from specifically the abuse doc or abuse documentation working group coming on because I think a lot of focus gets put on like the physical doing, the putting out the water and, and all of that. And that stuff is really important, like, you know, obviously. Um, but I also think it's great to really highlight the work that a lot of people have been doing to document the reason and the need and the reactions from uh, border patrol and other like governmental bodies in response to this humanitarian aid. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm really, I'm really excited to have to like highlight this particular aspect of that work. And yeah, but before we get to that, we are a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show on that network. Do, 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 do. The border is not just a wall. It's not just a line on a map. It's a power structure, a system of control. The border does not divide one world from another. There is only one world, and the border is tearing it apart. The Ex-Worker Podcast presents No Wall They Can Build, a guide to borders and migration across North America. A serialized audiobook in 11 chapters released every Wednesday. Tune in at crimethink.com slash podcast. And we're back. Uh, thanks y'all so much for coming on the show today to talk about to talk about this thing. Uh, could y'all introduce yourselves with your name, pronouns, and um, I guess what your role is with No More Deaths and this report? Yeah, I can go first. Um, uh, my name's Parker. I use she/her pronouns. I have been involved with No More Deaths since about 2015. I came down and started volunteering in the desert. Um, moved to Tucson a little bit after that. Uh, so I've been involved with Desert Aid and then also involved with the Abuse Documentation Working Group, um, producing the Disappeared Report that we're going to talk about. Sophie and I were co-coordinators um, for several years working on that project and then have both been involved as volunteers. 
Um, hi, my name is Sophie, and I use she and they pronouns, and um, I've been a volunteer with No More Deaths since 2011, um, volunteering with Desert Aid and also with uh, community-based search and rescue, and I'm a co-author for the Disappeared Report series and um, co-coordinated with Parker on this report. Cool. Um, and for for folks who, who who don't know, um, what what is No More Deaths? What what does No More Deaths do? No More Deaths is a humanitarian aid organization. Um, mission is to end death and suffering in the borderlands. Um, no More Deaths was formed in two thousand four uh, in response to um, rising deaths of people crossing the border. There's a number of different like working groups and projects under the No More Deaths umbrella. Um, so Sophie and I have been a part of the abuse documentation working group, documenting the kinds of things we're seeing in the course of the work. There's Desert Aid. Um, Desert Aid, uh, they do water drops where we bring out water and food and leave them on migrant trails in the remote borderlands. Um, we maintain a humanitarian aid camp where people can come and get food and water and respite. We do a community-based search and rescue project where there's a hotline and we get reports of people who have gone missing while crossing the border and can send out volunteers to do search and rescue. Um, we also do some support in Northern Mexico for uh, post-deportation or pre-departure um, support. Yeah, so there's a lot of different projects sort of under this umbrella, but all sort of humanitarian aid trying to provide support for people who are crossing the border um, in Southern Arizona. Cool, cool. Yeah, y'all y'all do so many different things. And I've been wanting to get uh, someone from the group to uh, come talk about stuff for a while now. Um, I used to volunteer with y'all, and I reference um, like like border aid stuff on the podcast a lot. And you know, so just very really stoked to have have y'all here to talk about this. And uh, the the new report is a great opportunity to to wrangle some folks into into coming on. Um, I was wondering though if uh, y'all could share a little bit about like the, I guess like kind of the context of like the border and specifically like, you know, border militarization and border patrol's role in that to kind of build a little foundation for what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So um, when talking about the militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border, um, usually we're kind of looking at a time period of the last 30 years or so. Um, starting in 1994, which certainly wasn't the start of border militarization, but was a signal uh, year in terms of the enforcement strategy on the border really um, shifting gears. So in 1994, many people remember that year because it was the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement and AFTA, which had really huge consequences um, uh, for migration. Um, we know that NAFTA contained neoliberal economic reforms that uh, took away tariffs and barriers to trade and led things like U.S. subsidized corn to flood uh, the market in Mexico, which drove down prices and then spiked this labor-driven migration of 
people who had historically been able to make ends meet through farming heritage corn and no longer could compete. Um, so, so we know that NAFTA sparked this labor-driven migration. We know that's not the first time that U.S. policy has sparked migrations across the border. But what was different in 1994 was at the same time, the U.S. Border Patrol um, came together to come up with a policing strategy of how they were going to control the border given this expected rise in labor-driven migration um, from south to north. And so Border Patrol met with security heads from the Department of Defense who were versed in conducting regime change, low-intensity conflict doctrine throughout Latin America in the 80s. Uh, and they produced a new strategy for how they're going to police the 2,000-mile southern border. The strategy that they came up with is called prevention through deterrence, uh, which is kind of a technical and clunky title for um, a really uh, nefarious strategy. So um, the, the theory was that the southern border couldn't be sealed off entirely, despite all the rhetoric we see about, you know, border walls sealing the southern border. The Border Patrol observed that the border couldn't actually be sealed from migration, um, but that the flow of uh, migration across the border could be um, controlled. And so uh, Border Patrol sought to concentrate enforcement resources, so personnel, vehicles, infrastructure like walls, surveillance technology, in and around ports of entry in urban areas along the border where migration had historically flowed uh, as a mechanism that would then push uh, people attempting to cross the southern border without official permission out into remote areas along the border um, between ports of entry between cities. So especially um, huge expanses of desert um, all along the border. And the strategy document, which is public, you can you know, look at it online, um, specifically says that the strategy intends to push people out into uh, remote areas where they can find themselves in mortal danger as a consequence of being exposed to the elements um, without access to food, water, or rescue. Uh, and the belief was that by pushing people into these remote areas, a certain number of people would not make it. They would be deterred, either having to turn back um, or they would perish, and that this would uh, then dissuade others from attempting the journey. It would prevent uh, rising levels of migration. This was the theory of prevention through deterrence, that by making the border as deadly, as costly as possible to cross, that this would deter others, it would prevent others from attempting um, the journey. Um, and so, uh, what happens is that border patrol puts up walls, um, installs surveillance technology in and around Port Centro and places like El Paso Juarez, um, uh, and places like Nogales and places like San Diego, Tijuana, all at the end of the 1990s. And indeed this, um, shifts patterns of migration and documented migration out into these really remote regions of the desert where people are having to undertake multi-day journeys on foot through a really rugged um, geography. And, and immediately we start to see um, uh, hundreds of remains, um, human remains recovered from remote areas of the border by 2000, 2001, 
2002 as a result of this policy, people who are dying from things like exposure to the elements um, or who uh, whose death cause of death is actually not able to be determined because their remains um, have decomposed so much before they've been located because they're perishing in such remote areas. So this humanitarian crisis opens up on the border in the early 2000s, and this is what humanitarian groups like No More Deaths and others start attempting to respond to. Um, and this is still the policy that we see um, on the southern border. Of course, it's been bolstered by things like the 2006 Secure Fence Act, which really increased the number of Border Patrol agents on the line dramatically and allowed agents to start to patrol remote areas and rural communities in addition to being stationed in cities to push people out into um, the desert and also extended funding for for walls. We also have seen more recent um, walls go up under the Trump administration and now Biden's also um, funding that. Um, but this is still the strategy under which Border Patrol is policing the southern border. Um, and uh, and again, this was never a strategy to close the border, but to, to try to control the rate of crossing by making it as deadly or dangerous as possible. And, and so the thing about prevention through deterrence is that it's been incredibly successful in pushing people out into remote areas where they find themselves in mortal danger, that that um, indeed was a prediction that that um, did come to pass. We know that the remains of at least 10,000 people have been recovered from the southern border, and uh, experts estimate that the true number of deaths are probably three to 10 times higher than that number because so many people are perishing in such remote areas that their remains are never found, or if they're found, they're never identifiable. So we call this a crisis of death and disappearance on the border um, due to um, due to that phenomenon. Um, but we also know that prevention through deterrence has been a real you know, failure in terms of preventing undocumented crossing on the southern border. This policy has coincided with a lot of measures to um, cut off uh, legal paths of entry, um, shrink asylum programs, refugee programs, further criminalize migration. Um, and as a consequence, uh, people, more and more populations are being caught up into this system and more and more families are, are moving to the U.S. permanently rather than mit- risk uh, multiple crossings to migrate seasonally for work or things like that. So this is the same system under which um, a lot of uh, people fleeing um, uh, conditions in the Northern Triangle um, as a consequence of U.S. policy in the hemisphere, they're being caught up in this in this system of migration, um, too. And we know that there's at least 13 million people now residing in the U.S. Um, who don't have documentation or full status um, or, or protection or rights um, as a consequence of this. So this is really the the context in which humanitarian groups are trying to respond by providing food, water, um, and even improvised emergency medical services in these remote areas. And it was also it's also a context in which, in terms of abuse documentation, there's a real need for witnessing um, and uh, documentation of what's happening on the ground out in the backcountry. Um, where Border Patrol agents are operating daily uh, with with no witnesses and virtual impunity. Um, so this was really kind of the, the context that gave rise to the abuse documentation project in general and these reports more specifically. Cool. Thank, or, I mean, you know, not cool, but thank you for... <laughs> um, <laughs> thank, you, thank you for walking us through that. Um, 
I've heard a lot, of, you know, over the years, I've heard a lot of, um, been to a lot of trainings about where there's like a border militarization, like context. And I don't know that I've ever heard it put so like succinctly and neatly. Uh, so that's, that's, that is incredible. Um, and yeah, it's, it's funny because when I was putting together notes for the show today, I had like a little note, like, Oh, make sure to talk about, um, the deterrence through death strategy. And then I was like, wait, is that what it's called? Um, and then I couldn't remember if that's like what it was officially called or not. And then, yeah, remembering that it was maybe not called no, that. That's but just that what is, it is. Yeah. That's just what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, could y'all, I guess, maybe with that foundation, um, what, like, what, what is the abuse doc working group then do? And like, how did the disappeared report series kind of like come to be? Yeah. The, um, the abuse documentation working group, um, it's been, you know, around through a number of different projects with different volunteers kind of, um, leading them. And a lot of the earlier reports that No More Dust was putting out were focused on um, detention. So we put out a report called Culture of Cruelty that really focused on um, really inhumane conditions, abusive conditions within uh, border patrol custody. So short-term border patrol custody before people are deported or turned over to ICE um, and focusing on things such as denial of food and water, denial of medical care, psychological abuse, um, just, yeah, really horrible conditions, people being held longer than they're legally supposed to without being given phone calls and things like that. Um, so that report um, primarily was done through interviews with people who had been deported um, and just kind of arose out of the conversations people were having people through our support work at shelters there and hearing the conditions that they were being held under. Um, so Culture of Cruelty was one of our early reports. We put out Shakedown, which focuses on... Um, Border Patrol's um, seizing of people's belongings when people are in Border Patrol custody without returning it. Um, and both of those reports really focused on advocacy and trying to, you know, push for policy changes in response to these, like, patterns that we were documenting. Um, and I think people sort of had the experience of, you know, uh, providing really clear documentation and then seeing that Border Patrol is still just denying the same things that, you know, we're, we're showing proof of and not seeing the changes that they wanted to see come out of those reports. Um, the disappeared series, I think was sort of like a shift organizationally and wanting to, um, really document what's happening in these remote borderlands areas. Um, and really like push our messaging to call for the abolition of border patrol. Um, and really just like say what we wanted to say politically. Um, and, and document things that there was really like no documentation of at that time. So the Disappeared Report series, um, it's focusing on um, the actions of Border Patrol in remote borderlands areas where there's, you know, there's no transparency whatsoever about what's happening um, because there has been this intentional push to um, push migration into wilderness areas. Um, and really focusing on prevention through deterrence, but also the way that the day-to-day -day actions of Border Patrol agents um, are consistent with this logic of increasing the risk of death to people who are migrating um, and the ways that that logic is carried out on the ground. 
And uh, it was a collaborative uh, project. So the Disappeared Report series started as a collaboration between No More Deaths and another organization called La Coalición de Derechos Humanos, um, who's been really vocal against militarization from, from the very beginning. At the time, Derechos Humanos, um, they were operating a missing migrant crisis line, um, similar to what No More Deaths operates now. So they were receiving this huge volume of calls from family members um, reporting their loved ones who were missing. Um, and No More Death started to collaborate with them um, with doing search and rescue um, in the field when they received a call where there was like a viable possibility that that person was still alive and could be rescued. Um, so that collaboration led to the Disappeared Report series. And yeah, so we've put out, this is the fourth installment of the Disappeared Report series. So what have the, what have the other parts of the Disappeared Reports explored? Um, yeah, so the first report is, focuses on deadly apprehension methods, um, particularly on the practice of chase and scatter in the wilderness. Um, so this is documenting a practice that, you know, we, you know, see and hear about every day in the course of this work, where Border Patrol chases groups of migrating people, causing them to scatter and become separated from each other in the remote wilderness, um, often not detaining a lot of the people who have become separated. Um, and this is really the beginning of a cycle of um, death and disappearance because when people are scattered in the wilderness like this, they can become injured in the chase. They become separated from their group, which may include family members that they were traveling with, separated from a guide. Um, they become lost, disoriented. You know, people are crossing in this area that have no familiarity with the landscape. Um, so a lot of the time when we encounter people who are, you know, in a life-threatening situation, it's because they've been chased and scattered by border patrol. Um, and so they're now like lost and alone in the wilderness. People lose their belongings and then chase, lose their food, water. Um, and so this is something that, you know, with uh, the hotline where we receive calls from family members, a lot of the time they're saying, um, you know, my loved one was chased by border patrol. They don't know where they are. Um, they're separated from their group. You know, they need um, to be rescued. Um, this is so routine. Border Patrol really doesn't see it as an abuse. They see it as the way that they um, are enforcing the border, um, but it is an extremely dangerous enforcement practice. Uh, in the practice of chasing and scatter that we examined in part one, uh, we looked at surveys conducted in Nogales as well as the Derechos hotline cases and um, found that chase and scatter uh, by Border Patrol agents is incredibly common, as Parker was was saying, uh, um, that that we found that um, 40% of people who had been um, chased by Border Patrol became injured or, or even killed through the process of that chase. Um, 40% of people who had been chased and scattered became lost. Um, and 35% of the emergency cases that we looked at that involved chase and scatter ended in the disappearance of the person who came into distress after that enforcement contact. So it's really a way in which Border Patrol's daily activities are, are reinforcing the, the strategy of prevention through deterrence on the ground by sending helicopters and vehicles and agents on foot and dogs after people in remote areas um, who run in every di direction, often late at night, 
um, when Border Patrol agents have night vision goggles. Um, and, you know, we looked at the way in which they've actually documented this activity themselves on the like cop style uh, reality show Border Wars uh, that has many scenes of Chase and Scatter. Um, so we looked at some of that in which Border Patrol is actually documenting their own um, crimes uh, and using it as propaganda for the agency. Um, I didn't know that that TV show existed. That's yeah. Oh, that's absurd. Um, I don't. I don't recommend it. But, <laughs> but it's, um, <laughs> it was. It was helpful and kind of you know we're we're interested in the way in which these agencies are are providing evidence of their own um, of their own abuses. Yeah, and. I like for I guess like the the chase and scatter kind of like protocol like um you know not that I would not that I would prefer that people get apprehended but like why I I guess like like why why do you like the chase and scatter thing instead of apprehending people which seems to be what they border patrol like tells the public they're trying to do versus like what they actually do I mean I think that chase and scatter is part of a more general pattern where we're seeing migrating people being treated as like enemy combatants, enemies of the state against whom it's somehow appropriate to deploy all the weapons of war. And I think watching border wars, you really do see this as, as war games um, to an extent. And I think that, you know, the other piece of that beyond just wanting to, you know, use the kind of military style equipment that they're given um, and, and we're talking about this, by the way, in the context of like we're on U.S. soil where this is happening. This is like anywhere from the borderline all the way to 100 miles within the U.S. interior is the terrain in which um, Border Patrol is operating. And when you look at death maps, you can see recovered remains kind of scattered far into the U.S. interior. But really, you know, from Border Patrol's perspective, whether they apprehend a person or they scatter them so that they become lost, disoriented, um, and in harm's way, either of those outcomes reinforce the strategy of prevention through deterrence, right? On the one hand, you have increased apprehensions as a way to, you know, in their minds, deter others from attempting the journey. And on the other, you have injury and death as a way to build up that, that deterrent. Um, again, we see that that deterrence ultimately doesn't work when measured against the conditions that people are leaving or fleeing from in order to cross the border. Uh, but, but both outcomes absolutely serve, serve the, the overall strategy of prevention through deterrence. Um, and, I, and I think it's just another way in which we see people's lives um, who are crossing the border being treated as disposable and not deserving of the kinds of protections uh, afforded to us, right? That it's not... Um, important to them whether uh, whether they apprehend everyone, whether people become lost and those people are not even counted. Um, uh, so I think that that's sort of a deeper structural violence at play in these in these scenarios. Was going to say the same thing. I think there's sort of just like a um, institutionalized like lack of concern for like the outcomes that people face, especially because like the outcome of someone potentially dying is baked into the strategy. Um, I remember one of our co-authors talking about when they released the chase and scatter report, um, talking to a border patrol agent who I think at the time was the head of the 
their missing migrant initiative, just saying, you know, oh yeah, I never even thought about, you know, what happened to people after we chased them. Right. Um, so, you know, they scatter a group, they arrest a couple of people, they call it a day, they don't think about it. And if that person is lost and alone and doesn't have water, well, that's consistent with their enforcement anyways. Right. And the, the border is this kind of erratic and contradictory zone where on the one hand, the U.S.-Mexico border zone is one of the most heavily surveilled places on earth, right? Uh, in which enforcement yeah. can consolidate in these moments and become incredibly violent. You can be, you know, um, killed by a heavily armed agent with all these weapons of war treated as this enemy combatant on the one hand. At the other hand, you can die of exposure and dehydration and, you know, being in an area where you don't see another person for days at a time. So there's sort of these these two forces of, you know, militarism uh, and direct violence on the one hand, these kind of really violent kind of events. And then on the other, the forces of abandonment, right, where there's there's no one to help you. And these things work together um, which is, is sort of difficult to grasp when you're in that zone, right? If you're circulating in the border zone, and I mean, all of us know this from volunteering, you can see no one the whole day and then suddenly come up upon a heavily armed agent who wants to point their AK-47 at you. You know, both of these kinds of forces of indirect violence, of abandonment and direct violence exist in this, in this geography. Yeah. Um, I know this is maybe a little outside the scope of what we were going to talk about today, but um, I was wondering if y'all could briefly just talk a little, a little bit about like the legal systems that people are facing when they are apprehended. Like, what is like what is the process of like being going from like being apprehended to being deported look like? Yeah, well, so people are when they're detained in the field, they're held in short-term border patrol custody. Um, where, you know, like I was mentioning before, we've documented all kinds of abuses that people face in custody. Um, I remember early on in Trump's presidency, there was this really high profile news story about a seven year old who died in Border Patrol custody, um, who, you know, hadn't received water or medical care. And um, I remember us, you know, just calling attention to the fact that we've been documenting that same pattern for, you know, like over a decade. Um, so people are held in Border Patrol custody, which is supposed to not be any longer than three days maximum, it's supposed to be shorter. Um, some people at that point are like rapidly deported. And then we also saw, you know, these last few years under Title 42, people being just rapidly deported um, immediately upon being detained in the field without any sort of legal process. Um, and then other times, you know, people are held in ICE custody where they're held in detention centers. And then there's also Operation Streamline where people are... Um, some people are given criminal charges um, and then they are, um, you know, fed into our regular criminal justice system. But they have, you know, it's this total farce of justice where they call it Operation Streamline. Well, they'll bring like 70 people a day and just charge them like all at once. Um, and that's for uh, criminal entry or reentry. Um, and people are just have to essentially plead guilty to the lower charge of criminal entry instead of reentry so that they can face six months instead of two years. Um, so we're also just feeding people into our prison system as well as into the ICE um, detention system. Yeah. And do charges like that like preclude someone from being able to apply for like asylum or or like other kind of like like legal processes for like documented immigration? 
Yeah, I imagine they do. It's on. I don't think it's really like uh, Myra Sophie's wheelhouse, the um, legal immigration system. I do know that, you know, theoretically, people who are detained by Border Patrol could request asylum, but there's a lot of documentation of Border Patrol, um, you know, not asking or ignoring people when they do say that they want to make an asylum claim after detaining people in the desert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess to to shift a little bit more into what we uh, the current report. Um, I was wondering if y'all could talk a little bit about. Um, I guess like the the third report left to die as like a like a prelude to what we're going to talk about today. Should we talk about part two really quick before? Oh yeah, yeah. There's part Sorry. two too. Sorry, we <laughs> skipped part two. Yeah. What what happened? What happened in part two? Uh, part two documented interference with humanitarian aid. Um, so pretty early on, I think when Nomorda started to do water drops, we started to find that our water drops would sometimes be vandalized or destroyed. Um, people would stab water gallons, dump them out. Um, we put out cans of beans. People would dump those out or stab them so that they rot. Um, and we anecdotally like believed that Border Patrol was responsible for at least some amount of this destruction just from seeing them near the drops and then finding them vandalized um, or just the drops being out in areas where Border Patrol is the only other person out there. Um, but to document this, we started to put out uh, game cameras on a lot of the drops that were regularly vandalized um, and trying to capture footage. Um which is pretty difficult. The game cameras, like they turn on anytime, you know, like the wind blows and the grass moves. So a lot of the time we would come and find the battery dead, but the drop had been vandalized, but we didn't get any footage. Um, But over the years we did collect footage um, and we got several instances of border patrol on camera, destroying these water drops, stabbing them with knives, things like that. Um, So we wanted to document this pattern in that report. Um, So in addition to that footage, we did an analysis of all of the logs that we keep um, from every water drop that we go to where we mark instances of vandalization um, and just kind of looked at the scope of it, if there were any patterns and where it was happening and when it was happening. Um, and Sophie, do you have some of those findings, Sandy? So so just um, for context, the main part of No More Dust's work over the years has been mapping migration trails. Uh, people undertake you know, anywhere from three days to over a week of a journey through the desert, through really kind of labyrinthine topography, especially in southern Arizona, it's high desert. So it's really mountainous, with a system of canyons, and there's just thousands of trail systems that have been um, uh, created over time uh, in the backcountry that are routes that, that people are taking to cross into the United States. So we've located, you know, certain areas of high concentration where we'll place drops of water and food um, and other supplies, uh, like Parker was mentioning, to try to mitigate death and suffering in those areas. So we looked at the records that were kept by No More Deaths volunteers um, over three years, in which over 30,000 gallons of water were left in the backcountry. And and within that, we were seeing that 86% of the water that we put out does get used, that this is a really important um, harm reduction measure to support um, life in the backcountry as people are on their journey. Um, But we also found uh, that at least 3,586 gallons of water, so over 3,000 gallons of water had been 
vandalized or destroyed um, uh, in at least 415 different like destruction <laughs> events. And as Parker was mentioning, um, you know, really early on, we got footage of Border Patrol destroying water. There's kind of an infamous video that we put out of a Border Patrol agent kicking gallons of water that had been put out at a water drop. Um, we got more footage and, you know, have a lot of anecdotal anecdotal evidence um, reinforcing this. And, and that report also then looked at Border Patrol action on humanitarian aid stations, um, attempts to um, repress or prosecute um, volunteers uh, um, with non-governmental organizations like No More Deaths and others um, doing this kind of harm reduction work. Um, and so, so that report looked at kind of a series of attempted prosecutions. Um, there were cases in which volunteers were given littering tickets for putting out water on migration trails as if water is somehow trash in the desert, um, among other, other cases. I don't know if Parker wants to speak to that more directly. Um, but we're looking at kind of that as a, as you know, both the destruction of water and the charging, the attempted criminalization of, of volunteers trying to prevent loss of life as a, as kind of a repressive um, uh, campaign um, that Border Patrol is leading against humanitarians, coincident with the agency really trying to up its PR and branding as itself somehow a humanitarian actor on the border. So this report was being written at the same time that Border Patrol is doing things like publishing um, number of border deaths, according to them, versus number of rescues that they apparently conducted, uh, which we get more into in part three, um, but really trying to say, uh, make these claims that overall somehow they are humanitarian actors in this gauntlet of their own making. Um, so that was sort of some of the, the spirit behind that report was to, to provide evidence, direct evidence to the contrary. Yeah, I guess to, just to the interference with humanitarian aid, the interference with volunteer um, humanitarian aid. Um, one thing that we do focus on in that report too is the raids of our humanitarian aid camp. Um, so I mentioned we maintain um, a constant presence in the desert um, at our humanitarian aid camp um, and Border Patrol has a history of conducting raids at this camp. So coming and surrounding it, um, providing a lot of like intimidation as well as a few times when they have entered the camp and arrested people who were there receiving care. Um, so really just like creating this um, atmosphere of intimidation specifically at a humanitarian aid camp. Um, and one of those raids, um, they mentioned that they had tracked people for 18 miles until they got to the camp, at which point they surrounded the camp for multiple days until they came in and arrested people. Um, so directly interfering with the provision of humanitarian aid. Um, the charging of volunteers, actually a note about the timing of that, this report actually came out before um, a lot of criminal charges were filed against our volunteers. Um, and in fact, the day that this report came out and the day that we released this footage um, of Border Patrol destroying water gallons, um, Scott Warren, one of our volunteers, was arrested six hours later that same day. Which spawned like a like multi-year legal battle, right? But did result in him being acquitted by a jury. Yeah, Scott Warren was charged with multiple felonies, felony um, harboring and smuggling um, for volunteering at a No More Deaths aid station in the area of Ajo, Arizona, where he provided first aid and care um, to two patients 
um, who had sought help at that aid station, uh, right? And that, you know, was a huge court process. There were multiple trials. The first one ended in a hung jury, and the second one, he was acquitted on all charges. But there was a lot of um, discussion in court as to, you know, to what extent was his arrest retaliation for the releasing of our second report. There was um, evidence that Border Patrol agents had knowledge of the report that morning. Um, So we really saw that as retaliatory, but at the same time, um, his acquittal then provided, you know, important case law within the district to provide a certain, you know, measure of protection for providing humanitarian care to people um, in the in the borderlands. So it was really important kind of instruction to us regarding the, the legality of our work, the kind of um, defense that can be waged in support of volunteers. So ultimately, it was a, a victory that really kind of reinforced the foundations of our work um, in that way, but was a huge, a huge effort, huge struggle for Scott personally, and, you know, really aimed to have a chilling effect on, on the work in the desert over. Yeah, that trial was, that trial was crazy. Like, I don't know, like, I went to the, like, I attended a couple of days of, like, the court process, and, like, yeah, the, I just remember, like, listening to the prosecutor, like, try to make, like, absolutely absurd claims in court like that like that drinking water might be harmful to someone as like Mm -hmm. a reason for like why humanitarian aid organization organizations shouldn't leave water in the desert for people right and i was like this this is like a this is like a highly paid like criminal prosecutor who's like trying to argue and like get doctors to agree with like the absurd claim that like drinking water might be harmful to someone who's experiencing dehydration. And I'm just like, like this is a farce. Some of it was so <laughs> bizarre. Well, and his, the smuggling charge was only based on him being seen, not heard outside of the aid station seen pointing to the mountains while talking to the two patients. And because he was pointing North, that was considered an act of smuggling, um, which I thought was incredible. And there was this really, you know, powerful moment where Scott did take this stand and and said, you know, I was saying uh, there's one highway going through this huge expanse of incredibly desert, deadly desert. Um, and so don't walk towards those mountains because there's no help if you come into harm's way to the east, uh, to the west. It's another 20 miles before you'll hit another major road. If you're in trouble, find the highway, right? Um, so giving, you know, knowing that these two patients were, were planning to reenter uh, the backcountry and trying to give, you know, life-saving information um, was considered to be an act of smuggling. And then I also remember the prosecutor in his closing arguments on the last day, uh, putting up a picture that had been taken of volunteers with the patients after they'd like recovered to a certain degree, um, where, where they were Mm -hmm. smiling and claiming that, uh, that these patients were basically on vacation 
in the United States who had gone through, you know, life or death kind of harrowing circumstances, traveling through one of the most deadly corridors um, along the whole border. And they were so lucky to be alive by the time they they reached Ajo. And somehow the, the prosecutor wanted the jury to believe that they were just hamming it up and having a great time on vacation. I mean, it was incredible that that trial to sit in on and, um, yeah relieving to see that those arguments didn't really hold water in the end yeah and but also i don't know it's like frightening to see like what like the legal system can like bring charges to bear on someone where they have like absolutely no evidence and that like it can then take like multiple years and like 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 obscene amounts of like community resources to like defend yeah. these charges i don't know it's mm-hmm. which i don't know is maybe maybe purposeful by them i don't know just or this is also a little bit outside of the scope but um but i feel like people are a little or my, like might be a little curious like if like like un, like under the law like what it, like people like who live in the borderlands, like if someone comes to your door and like what what aid can you offer people without like uh without legal complications? Yeah. Well what is the law first- is like what is like or I guess like what does the law define as like aiding and abetting or smuggling or human trafficking right. as we've like seen people get charged with? I mean, I'll say I'm not a lawyer. Parker is on the way to becoming one, <laughs> but <laughs> I will. Um, I can. I can say to. I mean, I think Parker will have something to add to this. Um, but first of all, under U.S. law, there's no um, obligation of any citizen to report on the status of anyone else to law enforcement. So, if I know that someone's undocumented, there's no law that says I must report their status to the authorities. So there's there's that kind of to begin with, um, that if someone comes to your door who you know is crossing through the desert, you don't have any obligation to report them to law enforcement under the law. And then, um, I mean, this is interesting because there's the kind of word of the law and then there's its interpretation, right? And a lot of uh, what, what we... Um, I think what Scott's case provided is some really important interpretation of, of the law. So we know that, you know, there's a specification of it's illegal to further someone's illegal presence in the country. That's the language, um, uh, which means that, you know, things like food, water, shelter, medical care, rest, a warm meal, clothing, none of that's actually furthering that person's uh presence in the country. So there's kind of a wide um, range of, of harm reduction that you can provide perfectly legally, right? And I, I think I've heard a lawyer once be like, you know, is, is taking your friend to dinner furthering their legal presence in the country? You know, no. Um, so, uh, so really we get into like issues of like, are you actually attempting to conceal that person from law enforcement? Are you hosting them as a guest? You know, what are, what, what is the intent behind your actions? So, um, in any felony case, it's not just simply that you're, you can't be convicted. Um, part of the conviction of a felony involves your mens reus, your mental state when convicting, when committing whatever act you committed. Uh, so it's not just that you, you know, invited someone into your house. It's what was the intent 
behind you inviting them into your house. And so a lot of these cases hone in on were you like hiding someone in your basement? Were you having them in your guest room, right? Were you driving the person as a passenger in your car? Were they hiding in your trunk? Things like this when we get into smuggling cases intent kind of indicated by um, the way you're interacting really matters in these cases. And that was really at play in, in Scott's trial, right? There was an argument that because people have been provided shelter in an indoor aid station that that somehow demonstrated concealment because they were behind four walls. Right. Um, which, which doesn't hold yeah. up. Right. Like I have guests at my house and I'm not concealing them from the law enforcement just because they're inside. Um, so, so we get down to the kind of nitty gritty of interpretation with this kind of, these kinds of statutes. Um, and that's why these, these cases really matter how they play out in court, how, how furtherance is being, is being defined. Um, Parker, did you have yeah. thoughts on that? Um. I think a lot of what I was going to say is the same as what you said. The the language of furthering someone's presence, I think, has been um, one that in, in No More Death sort of like analyzing our legal exposure um, have focused on. Like, for example, if, um, you know, you do encounter someone who is in critical medical condition and the nearest hospital is Nogales, you know, that, like you can drive them there. That's not furthering their presence. Um um, but, you know, I, I think ultimately it comes down to, I think this is sort of like a perennial question in No More Deaths is people trying to define what exactly is and isn't legal. Um, and as we all know, that um, doesn't necessarily have bearing on, um, you know, what the state will try to argue is illegal. And, you know, Scott, right. what Scott did was perfectly legal in all of our opinions. Um, if we'd had a different jury, um, he still could have been convicted regardless. Um, so, um I think the language leaves a lot open to interpretation and, you know, with the repressive state, they can, they can say that it's illegal. In fact, I think, um, even in the, we also had a number of misdemeanor charges that volunteers were facing and, and some went to trial for, um, the state in that case was trying to argue that humanitarian aid itself is, um, interfering with the government's compelling interest in enforcing the border. So when their enforcement tactic is to try and increase, the threat to people's lives, um, they can see humanitarian aid as, you know, a threat to that border enforcement and furthering people's illegal presence by simply helping them to survive, um, which that uh, that particular argument that the state made was like specifically addressed on appeal. And the judge said, this is, you know, grotesque. This is yeah. horrifying logic on the Idiot. part of the government, but they still tried to make that argument. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks y'all for getting into that a little bit. I th I think like as like a tie in to like a general theme of the podcast is you know community preparedness and mm -hmm. um I think something that like I I think something that like you know random like or people who don't spend time thinking a lot about community preparedness or don't or like don't have or like aren't radical leftists or like whatever like I think like think about these questions of like oh, if like I encounter someone who needs help, like what am I going to, how am I going to help that person ver versus like what is my fear of like doing something mm -hmm. illegal that could get me in trouble? And I, I worry that like, I worry that people having like myths or like misinterpretations or like, uh, or like listening to whatever propaganda Border Patrol is spewing that like, people won't act um, to help people or to like save someone's life because they think that they're 
doing something that could get them in trouble. And that fear of legal trouble is greater than like the desire to help people, which I don't think is true, but like something that I think people worry about, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I can say I live in Arabaca, which is um, the town that No More Death Space is a lot of its work out of. It's a rural town, 11 miles from the border. And residents there sitting in the middle of this migration corridor and everyone who lives there has had a knock on their door of someone who's lost, um, often extremely sick or injured and looking for help. And it's also a town that's under virtual, uh, you know, it's, it's actually... Um, it's not unique in the sense that all these towns um, along the border are now, you know, living under virtual border patrol occupation. They are surrounded by border patrol checkpoints. You can't go to the doctor. You can't go to the bank without passing through a checkpoint and talking to an armed guard. And there's a heavy presence of border patrol in and around uh, town, which, you know, has the function of, you know, on the one hand, they're doing these things like choose and scatter. On the other, this kind of high visibility is really intimidating to the public, right? You feel like you're up against this this mil- virtual, you know, domestic army um, and, and intimidation is real and they're coming onto people's property without notice, often pointing guns at residents, harassing locals, especially people of color, Um, So education and know your rights trainings have been so paramount because at the same time, you know, Border Patrol policy has put these communities on the front lines as the first responders when people are coming through um, incredibly remote areas and the first lights they see, the first roads they come to, the first buildings are these residents and these rural communities. They're kind of a natural source of support. And I think Border Patrol has a vested interest in trying to break apart the historic practice before or beyond organizations like No More Deaths, the residents opening their door and giving a hand, giving water to anyone who's out in the desert and in trouble. Um, so I think what you're saying Inman, has been like a real focus of organizing. And I know it has been in Ajo where Scott lives as well, where they have a local project also doing Know Your Rights Education and providing humanitarian resources and things like that to try to kind of break apart borders, border patrols attempt to recruit the local population into their really deadly, you know, enforcement, um, regime. Um, and I think, uh, I think, yeah, I think that there's been this like really vibrant history of border communities offering, uh, that support and, um, and, and facing down kind of the, the really intimidating, intimidating presence of this incredibly well-resourced, uh, militarized enforcement um, agency in and around their communities, you know? So I I think it's critical. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like seeing communities in, in Arabaca and Ajo and like on the Tono Odom nation, like really like band together to like combat these narratives that, that like border patrol or their government or, or the government are trying to really make people think are true and Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah that is that 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 has been like one of the most inspiring things to me about like um about uh like doing like border aid work or like anything like that is seeing like the communities that have really like sprung up to or the communities that like have forever been doing this kind of work um and like how they maintain that work and and like use that to like build 
community rather than like divide community. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like God. I remember like hearing someone once say they were like they're like they're like I don't care what the government says. I'm gonna give. I'm, if someone comes to my door, I'm giving them food. Damn it! And I was like, <laughs> Hell yeah, you're you're awesome. Oh, sorry. And this is like someone who I like don't expect to have any other political alignment with. But right. like <laughs> we agreed on that. And I was like, that's awesome. No, totally. Just yeah, I've had a few similar experiences in Tucson of just, you know, meeting like talking to my Uber driver or someone, yeah. you know, that I've like come into contact with completely unrelated to any sort of like political work, you know, and then then, you know talking to them and them saying, oh yeah, I ran into someone who was crossing once and gave them a lift to the gas station, like, so they could buy some food and water, you know, like just like things like that, where it's, you know, there is like on the one hand, this real fear of criminalization um, that like border patrol has created. Um, But then on the other hand, there's just like such a natural impulse for humanity, for people to, you know, give someone water or lift or, you know, whatever it is that they're needing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I'm just riffing off a specific organization's name right now, but it's almost like it's really important for people to help other people (laughs) and to just treat them like people because they're people. We're all just people trying to help people. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's part of this kind of longer, you know, history of social movement, I think, you know, that we're talking about like Germans sheltering Jews or underground railroad or, you know, it's always been that when you, you know, have a general population get caught up in um, these kinds of um, violent campaigns that are trying to, you know, um, discriminate and punish punish people based on identity. There are always, you know, locals who won't comply. And I think that it's, it's, it's heartening to see that tradition, you know, continue on the border in Southern Arizona. Uh, like you're saying in men against really, you know, among really unlikely actors, like many people I know Naravaka might hold really racist beliefs, but still are always going to give a person water and food and a bed to stay in uh, because they're people. Right. Um, so it's a yeah. really kind of interesting moment, which ideology sort of doesn't hold up to the, needs of the human needs of the present. Um, and I, I find that really hardening. Yeah. 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 It, it makes me really curious. And like, I want to try to learn more about like, about this specific, this t- part of this specifically, but like, it's like what's going on in like Palestine right now is like, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm really curious like about like what people in like neighboring regions are doing that are very similar to like this kind of work right now. And like what people and like what people hearing about like people like in Israel who are like, um, who are like getting indicted with like pretty scary, like criminal charges simply for like speaking out against um, what Israel's doing right now. I don't know. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. Um, but as a a kind of unfortunate segue, so like, you know, the Mm -hmm. community is really holding it down for, for, uh, trying to help, 
help people um, who are experiencing being lost and scattered in the desert. Um, but Border Patrol is doing the opposite of that. Um, right. Could y'all talk a little, little bit about, I guess, the third installment of the report? Yeah, the third installment is called Left to Die, and it focuses on search and rescue. And so this is another report that um, it, it came out of, you know, our experiences with the Missing Migrant Crisis Line and providing search and rescue, but also out of Border Patrol's um, sort of propaganda, styling themselves as humanitarian and putting out a ton of PR about their search and rescue um, you know, they hold these like PR events every year where they show, you know, their fancy helicopter tricks and they put out these statistics about how many people they rescue every year with no sort of explanation of what that means. Um, meanwhile, as they were doing that, you know, our personal experience and the experience of people with the Derechos Humanos Missing Migrant Crisis Line and with No More Deaths um, was like complete inaction when they would try and request a search and rescue from Border Patrol. Um, so when someone does call the missing migrant crisis line, a family member or someone who's lost, um, you know, we want whatever resources possible. That's um, almost always what the family is asking um, is for whatever resources possible to go to try and rescue their loved one. Um, and so we would call Border Patrol and a lot of the time um, we would get no response, a refusal to respond to go and search for someone. Um um, or, you know, like these really like vague, just sort of like, yeah, we'll look into it. And then they never call back. Um, so we were experiencing a lot of inaction in response to requests for search and rescue from Border Patrol. And we wanted to document that with this report. Um, so the report draws primarily from the case notes um, from emergency cases received by the Derechos Humanos Missing Migris Migrant Crisis Line. Um, so there were, I think, like 456 calls that mm -hmm. were classified in a two-year period as emergency cases. So these are cases where um, the person had been heard from within the last three days. There was some information about their location and there was a possibility um, that they were still alive in the desert in need of rescue. Um, so in contrast to a bunch of other calls that were received from the Derechos um, crisis line where someone was known to be in detention, but they were missing in detention or it had been months since they disappeared. These are the cases that were potential search and rescue. Yeah. So like Parker, so these are these are cases in which the family um, or the person was requesting a border patrol response or consented to um, us advocating or, or organizations advocating for a border patrol response. And we'll talk a little bit more about why border patrol um, for these cases. Um, but we we looked at the outcomes and and, you know, border patrol is this kind of notoriously uh, opaque organization. There's so little mm -hmm. public reporting or transparency about what they do. Um, so like Parker mentioned, they'd like publish these rescue statistics, but with no information about the cases from which they were deriving them. And we looked at, uh, you know, press releases where they, those, the headline was Border Patrol Rescues, you know, man. And then you read the the article and it's about them chasing someone into <laughs> a pond where they almost die. And then the agents pull them out of the pond. Right. Um, so it's really kind of farcical. Yeah. Phrasing of, of apprehension as rescue. Um, so so there really wasn't data to challenge that with. Um, so that's part of why we really wanted to look at this, this data set. And we found when we looked at those. 456 cases that 
63% of the time, so two thirds of those cases uh, where Border Patrol was pressed to respond to a person in immediate distress, we had no confirmation that they took any measure to mobilize a search or rescue um, in response to them. So nothing, um, no confirmation of any action being taken in two thirds of the time um, in, in hundreds of cases, right? And then in the 37% of cases in which there was indication that Border Patrol took some action to prevent loss of life, we found that their response was just severely, severely diminished uh, when compared against the measures that Pima County Sheriff's Department Search and Rescue would take if they were coming to save my life, right? Uh, If I was lost in, in the same area. So... Um, in particular, we saw Border Patrol have um, when they did deploy to search um, for a, a person who was lost in the desert and in distress. Um, we found that the duration of those efforts and the resourcing was just uh, was really diminished when compared to the measures taken to search for a citizen or a foreign tourist. So a lot of those searches lasted less than a day, um, and we had some that lasted less than an hour uh, without locating the person. Um, So, and then just, you know, lack of resources. Like a lot of those deployments were simply a helicopter flyover when you look in the newspaper at the case of like a missing hiker, right? A citizen hiker, Mm -hmm. you'll see that those searches will take like two weeks and that the search effort and area and resources will 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 expand with each day that the person is not found, right? More and more resources are added because it's more and more urgent. Instead, we see that if the person isn't pretty quickly located in the one third of the time that Border Patrol deploys at all, they will call off the search. And so as a consequence of that, we found that in out of these 456 cases that a quarter of the time the person in distress was never located. Um, so that's not that's not a quarter of the time that they they died. Um, that's a quarter of the time that they disappeared, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the person was never located, one in four cases, and yet the search was called off. Um, and we can see that that's just absolutely indication of deadly discrimination. That that you know, if that were those are not the numbers that citizens see. And and I think this was really important and kind of. Combining these observations with that first report, Chase and Scatter, to really put together a full picture in which we found that um, looking at the kind of critical role that Border Patrol is playing in putting people into a life or death situation by chasing them and scattering them in the wilderness compared with the frequency with which they would deploy to search for and rescue a distressed person, we were, were able to say that Border Patrol is two times more likely to take part in causing a person to go into distress, causing an emergency, than they are in participating and attempting to rescue them. Um, so really, they're just always responding to these emergencies of their own making, and they're, they're much more heavily um, focused on their enforcement priority, right? And, and putting people in harm's way as a matter of policy. Yeah, it really is the sort of like twisted rebranding of, of prevention through deterrence and the fact that people are being pushed into danger. It's like, you know, someone at Border Patrol's office was like, I know we can call these rescues now because everybody who's crossing, um, you know, through mm-hmm. the border is, is facing a huge like threat to their life. They're in wilderness areas, they're lost, they're in distress. Um, and then because of that, Border Patrol can uh, rebrand any arrest of somebody um, as a rescue by saying, 
yeah, we arrested this person, you know, who was like lost and therefore we rescued them. And then use that number to somehow offset the death statistics, which is incredible to me um, to to publish these numbers. You know, Borbatol saying, okay, there were 300 human remains recovered this year, but allegedly they rescued 700 people as if there's something legitimate about you know, that, that death statistic needs to be zero, right? It's, it's sort of like trumpeting its own death statistics, you know, to, in a way as a way to then comparatively have their rescues seem even more significant. Um, and it makes you sort of forget that, that death statistics should be, should be zero. And that those numbers are, you know, again, hugely partial because so many people are disappearing and never, never recovered. Um, the other part that the report looked at was what happens when, you know, the county doesn't deploy a search and rescue like they would for a person with citizenship status or a tourist, which we'll talk about more. Border Patrol doesn't re- deploy um, and someone is in distress. Their family knows about it. They've received a distress call, right, from their their child, their brother, their loved one who's crossing. And we found that really often families and communities will mobilize an improvised search on their own um, based on the information that they have um, from the person who's calling them. Uh, so we're really interested in what happens when families and communities mobilize, sometimes with the partnership of community search and rescue organizations, sometimes on their own, and Border Patrol's reaction. So another kind of focus of part three was looking at systematic border patrol obstruction and interference with family and community-based search and rescues when all when all um, uh, systems kind of fail them and found that um, a quarter of the time, 25% of the time that communities and families deploy to search for their loved ones, border patrol obstructs those efforts uh, in some way. So we tracked a number of those issues like refusal to share critical information that Border Patrol might have about the person's pointless scene, denying access to um, eyewitnesses who might be in custody, um, harassing families and volunteers on the ground. Um, So a number of really serious kind of obstructions to anyone being able to access a search area and have adequate information. Um, Often Border Patrol will um, have coordinates of where they attempted to apprehend a group and people were scattered and the person you're looking for was scattered by the apprehension attempt and needs those coordinates to go to the point that they were last seen to start the search, right? And Border Patrol refusing to share that information and even cases in which Border Patrol was sharing false information um, with families and communities. Um, so, so again, we see this as another measure that's meant to just increase the the, the number of people who are who are dying and disappearing in an attempt to cross through the borderlands. Yeah, and within that, I think one thing that we really tried to highlight in this report too is the bureaucratic runaround that families mm-hmm. and volunteers are met with trying to report an emergency. Um, so like a lot of people have probably, you know, had the experience of trying to call, you know, Verizon and getting like bounced around between different like voicemails. But that'll happen in these moments where there is a life threatening emergency that someone is trying to report and there is no functional system. It'll happen between, um, you know, a county run 911 and Border Patrol where the county saying, you know, that's not our job. It's Border Patrol's job. And then Border Patrol will be saying, well, no, you have to call 911. Um, it'll happen within Border Patrol agencies where you call one number and you're told you have to call this other number and then you get transferred to the other number and it's, uh, you know, a non-working number. 
Um, Border Patrol will say you have to call the consulate. The consulate will say you have to call Border Patrol or the consulate's closed on the weekend. Um, So it's a completely non-functioning emergency response system. And I think we just like want to capture that and the experience that, you know, families will go through just spending like hours and hours just trying to like even get someone on the phone who they can like report the emergency to. Um, And then, you know, half the time you do that and you don't even get a call back. So it's it's just a really like infuriating system. Yeah. And and just to add on to that as well, we we have a lot of cases where Border Patrol refuses to deploy, saying there's not enough information to search, and then families and or humanitarian organizations will deploy their own search and immediately locate the person, right? So, so some of those efforts also reveal that um, even minimal effort is so significant in preventing loss of life in these cases. And yet we see agents, you know, Border Patrol really reluctant or refusing to deploy at all. Um, thanks so much for listening, everyone. Um, we This interview was unexpectedly much larger than we thought it was going to be. And we're kind of just cutting in the middle of it. Um, and we'll continue the interview next week. Um, so tune in next week uh, for uh, now that we've finally laid a lot of groundwork for what the uh, new disappeared report is about, and then we can actually now we can actually talk about the new report. Um, and yeah, it's 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 going to be it's you know fun isn't the right word, but it's going to be an interesting uh, finish to the conversation. So if you enjoyed hearing about border militarization and um and the other reports um then tune in next week to finish the conversation and i'm just rambling now because i didn't write a script and it turns out i do really well with scripts but we will see you next time thanks thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this podcast then go do border work, go do humanitarian aid work, find ways to plug into these networks in wherever you live, um, because I'm sure they exist. And because unfortunately, the border is everywhere. And uh, there's which, you know, is horrible. And it also means that wherever you are, there's something, there's some way for you to plug in to deal with it, or whatever. You could also, if you like this podcast, um, rate and review and like and subscribe or whatever the nameless algorithm calls for, feed it like a hungry god. But if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity, then consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. And if you sign up for at like a $10 a month level, then we will mail to you a zine version of our monthly feature every month. It's called the Zine of the Month Club. It's really fun. And you get a nice little letter from us every month. I think it's delightful. And you can also support us by supporting our publisher, Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. Um, Strangers publishes books, uh, zines, comics, um, podcasts, obviously and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we have some exciting stuff coming out uh, this year and next year. And in particular, we would like to thank these Patreon subscribers who have just been, you know, really great. 
you're y'all are really i mean all of y'all are really great everyone who listens to the show is great um but we are going to highlight these folks in particular i'm not feeling awkward about anything right now but thank you so much patoli eric percival buck julia catgut marm carson lord harkin trickster princess miranda ben ben anonymous funder janice and odell ally paparuna milica Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, SJ, Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and the eternal Haas the Dog. Thank you so much. Um, And your support has allowed us to do so much. And tune in next week for part two of this interview. Um, Now that we've laid the kind of groundwork for the Disappeared series and the context of border militarization uh on the next episode we're gonna dive a little bit more into uh talking about things like search and rescue and um the newest report separate and deadly um so hope hope you're well as well as you can be and we'll see you next time